Welcome back to the program. Woody Allen and Annie Hall said that he felt that life was divided into two groups, the horrible and the miserable. The horrible, he thought, were terminal cases, blind people, people that were crippled. He said he didn't know how they got through life. Yet many don't have a choice. For many parents of children with severe disability, it appears on the surface that horrible is what they have to deal with each and every day. Except for many of them, it's not horrible at all. It's difficult, it's often painful, but it's also a powerful lesson about unconditional love, about finding strength in broken places, and about redefining one's identity, often by entering an alien world that sometimes turns out to be a place of love and safety and enrichment. This is the world that Andrew Solomon lays out for us in Far From the Tree. Andrew Solomon is the author of the bestseller The Noonday Demon, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and winner of the National Book Award. It is my pleasure to welcome Andrew Solomon back to this program to talk about Far From the Tree, parents, children, and the search for identity. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us once again. What a pleasure to be here again. Great to have you here. I want to go back a little bit. This project, when you originally got involved with it, started out as an article that you wrote back in the mid-90s about the world of people that were deaf and the sense of that being a kind of different and alien world. Talk a little bit about that. Well, my editors at the New York Times Magazine asked me to do the piece about the deaf, and I was very taken aback by the assignment at the time because I really had been working mostly on... um, foreign reporting. And my editor said, this seems to be a foreign culture within our own country, and you might be able to penetrate it and get through to it. And so I went off into the deaf world, really with the assumption that being deaf was a grave disadvantage, terribly sad, wouldn't it be awful not to be able to hear. And when I got there, I discovered that there was actually this coherent deaf world that was a world of people linked together by the shared use of sign language. And I went to deaf clubs, and I went to deaf theater, and I even went to the Miss Deaf America contest in Nashville, Tennessee, where people complained about the slurry southern signing. <laughs> and I got deeper and deeper into the deaf world. And I found that it was not only a coherent world, but also in many ways a very attractive world. And I found myself at deaf parties or at the meeting at the National Association for the Deaf thinking, gee, in a way at this moment, I wish I were deaf. Not I would like to not be able to hear anymore, but I would like to be part of this vibrant and attractive culture. And then I discovered that most deaf children are born to hearing parents, that they tend uh, to have parents who try to get them to function well in the hearing world, and many of them discover deaf culture in adolescence or thereafter. Um, And I thought that uh, that was very similar to my experience as the gay child of straight parents, that it took a while for me to discover this other culture, that my parents were initially uncomfortable with it and then came around. And I thought, this is a very vivid experience, this experience of entering into um, an alien world. What does it mean to have an identity, a very fundamental and defining identity that's alien to your parents? An identity that's alien to the parents, alien to the world, and that parents, sometimes out of the best intention, and society out of the best intention sometimes, feel that, that it needs to be fixed, that something needs to be changed to, to mainstream people. Yes, and I ended up thinking that this was an, an interesting and complicated question. It seems to me that there are two basic obligations attached to parenthood. One is to change your children. You educate them, you teach them about hygiene, you show them how to brush their teeth, you try to instill moral values. The job of parenthood is to change your children. Not to change your children in any way would be neglect. 
But your children also have profound and immutable qualities that you need not to change, but rather to celebrate. You need to build up your child's sense of validity in the world. And parents are constantly in the state in which some things obviously need to be changed, some things obviously need to be accepted, and then there's a bunch of stuff that's somewhere in the middle. And so I was very interested in how parents managed to figure out, okay, am I going to accept my child as an autistic person or am I going to try to help my child to be less autistic? And if I'm helping my child to be less autistic, am I really helping my child or am I just making my child feel bad about who he is and always will be? And those were the questions that really engaged me. And then there's this broader societal idea that we want each generation of children to do better, to be more successful, to have more than the generation that came before, than their parents. That is a whole different dimension when one enters the world that you're talking about. Absolutely. And a lot of these parents talked about the fact that they had been very ambitious for their children and that they had shifted those ambitions. There was one mother of a child with multiple severe disabilities who has almost no speech and who has difficulty with walking, though he can manage it. And his mother said, I just decided at some point fairly early on that what I wanted to do was to bring him up to think he was the most terrific person in the world. She said, and sometimes I think I went too far and he ended up a little bit arrogant. She said, but he's a happy person. And I thought, okay, if someone had offered me one wish when my child was being born, what would it have been? Would it have been that he go to Harvard? No. It would have been that he be happy. And that would have been my first wish, and it would have come true. There are so many aspects that you write about that create a kind of universality of the experience of difference. And one of the things that seems to be inherent in that that universality is this tension that exists between understanding what the difference is and addressing that and loving that and appreciating that and this basic human instinct to want to change it, want to fix it, want to make it better. I think it's often difficult for people to see what can be changed and fixed and what can't be changed and fixed. And I wrote in the opening of the book about the fact that I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was very young and I was told um, when my parents were trying to get me into schools or rather they were told that I was never going to learn to read or write, which... I've had a lot of problems in my life, but that isn't one of them. Um, And my mother worked very closely with me on resolving the dyslexia and helping me to compensate for it. And she did so very successfully. And I ended up being a very fluent reader. And obviously, I now write books. So that aspect of it all worked out very well. But I think it set the stage in some ways for the sense that anything about me that she wasn't comfortable with would be easy to change. And so as I got to be older and the evidence came out that I was gay, I think my parents were uncomfortable with it, and they weren't ready to accept it initially. In the end, they did, and it's all worked out fine. But I think that sense of not knowing what are the things you can fix and what are the things you can't fix is a big question, and what are the things you should fix and what are the things you shouldn't fix. And most things that can be fixed quickly and easily and non-invasively, parents will try to fix because parents will be more comfortable with a child who is more like them. And the things that are more difficult and more challenging to fix um, or that are impossible to fix, they have to learn to accept. And it's not always easy to see to see what the difference is and to see um, what the best way is to love your child. Um, what is the best way to love a child who's different from you in some profound way? One of the other aspects that makes it so much more difficult to see those things is the way in which societal norms change over time and what we expect and what we're willing to understand as a society. 
Absolutely. And I think that acceptance has to occur at three levels. There's self-acceptance, there's family acceptance, and there's social acceptance. And each of them strengthens the other. Someone with strong self-acceptance is going to be able to do a much better job of winning his family over than someone who's full of self-doubt. But if the family is living in a more accepting society, they're going to have an easier time accepting than they otherwise would. And I was very interested in family because I think family mediates between the individual and the larger society and therefore plays a particularly critical role in these processes. But I felt altogether uh, that, that uh, it was a question of shifting mores. I mean, when I was a small child, I think my parents would have been horrified that I was gay, but at that point being gay was uh, considered a crime, um, a sin, and a severe mental illness. And in the last year, both the President of the United States and the Supreme Court have expressed support for gay marriage. So being gay now means very different things than being gay meant in 1963 when I was born. And I think the changes in society are profound. And I think that while there's a lot of coverage given to the changes in the treatment of gay people, we've actually shifted in how we deal with difference altogether. We're more accepting of people with disabilities. They're much more visible in our society than they used to be. We're um, accepting of people who have some of the other differences. I looked at people who are transgender, um, people uh, who are different in a whole variety of ways. And I think it's been an extraordinary process, that building of a more open and tolerant society. And I think it's made life easier for these families. I think the Internet has played a huge role as people have found community. And I hope that that pattern of empowerment is continuing forward to make a more and more accepting world. What are the dangers that some of these parents face in defining, redefining their own identity and redefining their whole lives in some cases as a result of having to deal with whatever the disability might be or whatever the problem might be with respect to these children? Uh, well, I think that uh, a lot of the conditions that I've looked at have uh, strong medical overtones. So. You have to make a lot of medical decisions about what you're going to do for your child, what interventions you're going to be involved in. You have to think through um, what the cost is and what the benefit is of those various medical interventions. So um, things that are effective and that happen pretty quickly need to be treated very differently from things that may not be as effective and that um, may take up a huge chunk of your of your child's life. Um, but I think the big thing is a sort of leap of the imagination that parents need to make and that parents do make actually surprisingly often. It's a leap of the imagination into saying, well, this isn't what I had in mind, but this is what I've got and I'll make the most of it. And I think sometimes of a family of a child with Down syndrome who uh, I talked to the mother who had become a big activist in the field of Down syndrome and helped to change the way educational services are delivered to people with DS. And I said to her, this has been such a big part of your life. Do you regret it? Do you wish your son didn't have Down syndrome? Do you wish you'd never heard of it? And she said, well, for my son, she said, I sort of wish that I could make it go away because for him it's a difficult way to be in the world and I'd like to make his life easier. But for myself, though I would never have believed 23 years ago when he was born that I could reach such a point, for myself it's made me so much more purposeful and given me so much more meaningful a life than I'd ever have had without it. But for myself, I wouldn't give it up for anything in the world. When you hear stories like that over and over again, and even a similar story that you heard from, and, and similar words from the mother of, of Dylan Klebold, 
To what extent do you question that? To what extent do you think that that's something that they've come to believe, and, and, and how true is it really? I started out with the idea that some people found meaning and other people didn't find meaning, and that I wasn't sure whether the meaning was there, and I had a lot of focus on whether people were just being self-deluding when they made these statements. And then I realized that what matters in these processes is not whether you find meaning, it's whether you seek for meaning. The mother of one child with very severe disability said to me uh, when I asked her about it, she said, people always regale us with these little sayings like God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. But children like ours are not preordained as a gift. They're a gift because that's what we have chosen. And that's what I really saw over and over again with families who had children, who had these differences, who made a strong and determined and personal decision that they were going to try to find meaning in what uh, they were looking at. And that search for meaning benefits them and makes it easier for them to love their children, and it benefits their children. There was a study done in which they examined um, mothers of children who were uh, two and a half years old, I think, at the time of the final interview. They interviewed them longitudinally. And what they found was that the mothers who had managed to find some kind of meaning had children who were doing better than, the, um, uh, than were the children of mothers who had not managed to find some kind of meaning. And as I say, find it, finding it is not really what's in essence. It's deciding I'm stuck with this. It's not what I would have chosen. It's not what I wanted. But as long as it's what my life is going to be, I'm going to figure out a way to construct something positive out of it. The other side of this, of course, is that this is not universal, that there are many parents that simply cannot deal with these issues, that where the children wind up institutionalized or, or some other way not involved with the parent. Well, there's a certain amount of sample bias in a book like the one that I wrote, because parents who have managed to find meaning and construct good lives are usually very eager to tell their stories, and parents who have experienced nothing but misery and woe and have given their children up for adoption mostly are less eager to tell the stories. But the book does include the story of one mother who uh, had a child with severe brain injury and gave that child up to social services, the child, the story of a mother who had uh, two autistic children who said, I have these children, I love them, I do everything for them, and if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't have children. And I think anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. So I did try to encompass that point of view. And of course, the, there are most of, uh, well not most, but many of the children available for adoption in the United States now are children with some form of disability. So a lot of people uh, choose to walk away from children like that. But I found that the people who uh, were keeping these children and who were finding meaning were not as surprising and heroic as one might have thought. They were, it was a more commonplace event um, than I'd have anticipated. Um, I found people from every walk of life from every part of the socioeconomic spectrum, from every ethnicity, in every location, who had managed to find ways uh, through with these children. And I really do think that the Internet and the sense of community that it fosters is very helpful to a lot of these parents, because parents would once have said, I don't know what to do with a child like this, I have to give him up. Now Google whatever the condition is their child has, find out how other people are coping, and draw a great deal of strength from that. Were you surprised at the resilience that some people bring to these issues, the resilience of the human spirit in so many cases? I was constantly inspired by the resilience of the human spirit. I kept looking at people who were dealing with what looked to me like such difficult circumstances and who over and over again seemed to have found 
some form of resilience. And I thought, where does that resilience come from? And I ultimately felt it um, uh, it comes from looking at the condition or the situation um, straight in the eye, that the people who had children who had differences and were trying to bring those children up as though they didn't have any differences were always struggling against reality and that that was often not a very productive thing to do. But the people who had children who had some form of difference and said, we're going to find meaning in this, we're going to go forward in it, they often had extraordinary lives. I think of the story, for instance, of one of the people, uh, uh, families I talked to, who had a child with um, dwarfism, and uh, his name was Clinton Brown, and his parents described how when he was born with diastrophic dwarfism, they were told that he was never going to amount to anything and would never be able to walk or talk or recognize them, and his mother took incredible care of him and found her way, even though she didn't have huge resources, to the best doctor for dealing with his situation. And he had all of these surgeries in the course of his childhood, one after the next, and um, 30 surgeries altogether. And as a result of them, he is able to walk. But while he was stuck in the hospital having all those surgeries, he decided he might as well focus on his schoolwork um, because there was nothing else to do. And so he ended up being one of the first people in his family to go to college. And um, his, uh, he went to a college not far from where his parents lived, and he had a specially fitted car that he was allowed to drive there. And his uh, mother uh, called me up one day and said, I was driving home today from doing some shopping, and I went past a bar, and there was Clinton's car hmm. parked outside a bar. And I thought, um, uh, he's three feet tall, they're six feet tall, two beers for them, it's four beers for him, and I was really worried, and I knew I couldn't go in there like I wanted, so I left him 11 messages on his cell phone, and then I thought, if someone had told me when he was born that my future worry would be that he would go drinking and driving with his college buddies, I'd have been so thrilled to have that problem. And I thought that that story um, was really a story of extraordinary transformation. I said to her, well, what did you do that allowed him to emerge as a popular, funny, successful, uh, intelligent, capable person the way he did after that dire prognosis at birth? And she said, what did we do? We loved him, that's all. Clinton just always had that light in him, and we were lucky enough to be the first to see it there. What role, if any, does faith play in, in the lives of so many of these people? I saw faith as playing a variety of roles. In the first place, I saw that there were many people who believed that in having children who were different in some way, they thought that God did have a purpose for them, and it gave them a sense of um, uh, calm uh, about what they were dealing with. They thought they were dealing with it for a reason, and it was leading somewhere. There were many people who talked about the fact that these children moved them toward faith. So the mother of uh, one very severely disabled child described how a few weeks after he was born, she said to her husband, we have to go and get him christened. And her husband said, but we're not very religious. Why would we do that? And she said, because we need to assert that he's fully a human being. Um, and I thought that was very powerful. I also saw stories in which um, uh, faith was used as the instrument of great prejudice against people. I saw people, for instance, who were transgender and who were rejected by the religious communities that they came from and made to feel very small and insignificant in the um, face of their profound identity. And I saw instances in which um, the church showed enormous compassion toward people and helped families tremendously in building good and worthwhile lives 
with these children who were different. Um, those faith communities could be vastly supportive. Um, and I saw people who said that having these children had pushed them toward faith, and I saw people who felt that God had lost interest in them if they had children like this and therefore withdrew from it. So it operated at every level. But overall, I would say um, that the sense of purposefulness that could come from religious conviction in connection with these children was the dominant theme. And the corollary of that, I suppose, is the degree to which so many of these parents feel a certain sense of responsibility, a certain blame that they feel for what's happened. The legacy of blame is enormous. Um, Of course, traditionally, um, people who were uh, gay were said to be gay because they had overbearing mothers and passive fathers, and people with autism uh, were that way because they had refrigerator mothers who were very cold with them, and people with um, schizophrenia had it because their parents nurtured an unconscious wish that the children not exist. And if we go back a couple of hundred years, parents were blamed for dwarfism and deformity, which were supposed to be Um, a manifestation of the mother's unexpressed lascivious longings. And so we've been blaming and blaming and blaming and blaming parents historically, and the legacy of that is very strong. Often, of course, the parents are not only not to blame, but are the people who are able to construct better lives for their children, but they have a great sense of guilt for having brought into the world children who will suffer. And at some level, we all have that. I mean, my children don't have disabilities, but I still sometimes feel guilty when I see them struggling and feel that I can't really help them and I can't fix everything that might have gone wrong for them. Um, But I think that legacy of blame has a a very dark side. James Watson, the discoverer of the helical structure of DNA, uh, who has a son with schizophrenia, said to me, referring to the mid-century psychologist who promulgated the refrigerator mother theory, said the most evil man of the 20th century after Adolf Hitler was Bruno Bettelheim. And I think that sense that parental blame has poisoned the waters is very powerful. And I think it comes into play in the question you asked earlier about uh, families who uh, get their children up for adoption. I think some of them find the guilt of having produced these children more than they can bear. What we need to do is take away the guilt and take away the blame, which are not productive or constructive, and instead to say, this is the child you've been given. What are the ways you can build the best possible life for him or her? And that blame is even more complicated among the criminal children, the children who turn out to be serious criminals, as you also investigate in the book. I think that we've now moved away from blaming parents for homosexuality and autism and dwarfism and most of the rest of these things. We've established medically that parents are not to blame in those instances, but we continue to blame parents if their children are criminals. And we do so in part because severe abuse or neglect can exacerbate criminal tendencies in children who might under better circumstances not have become criminals. And there were some people I met when I was working on my chapter on crime and I thought, my God, if I had had that childhood, who knows how I would have turned out. I don't think I would have been a criminal, but I certainly wouldn't be me. But I also met a huge number of loving and supportive families whose children just had a sort of broken morality in the same way that some children are born um, with a sort of damaged limb. And those parents were really terribly saddened by their children's transgressions and violations and were doing everything they could to bring those children up well and were doing in many ways what appeared to be a good job of bringing those children up well and this was just what happened to them. And I think as a society, as long as we continue to blame parents like that all the time, then we're going to create more and more and more damage for them. Um, What we need to do is to stop focusing on blame and say, okay, your child has turned out to be a criminal. What can we do 
to help you and to help your child to rebuild and to go forward and not to be um, not to be criminal in this way. And my heart really went out to these people. And since the book was published, I was kind of unsurprised that I got lots of letters from families of people with autism or Down syndrome. But I've been overwhelmed by the number of letters I've had from the parents of criminals who've written and said, thank you. Thank you so much for acknowledging we did our best and this is what happened and now we're doing our best to fix it and make it right and we feel so looked down on by the society at large and it's been such a boon to us to have anyone who understands our situation. How has the totality of this project changed or altered you and how does it continue still to change you and your thoughts about some of these things? It's changed me very profoundly. In the first place, I think I have a counterphobic tendency to rush at things that frighten me. So I'm afraid of heights, so I went skydiving. And I was afraid of and uncomfortable with people with disabilities, and working on this book really changed that. Partly, it changed my sense of what is valuable in human society. I think I was one of those advocates for fixing everything, and now I'm an advocate for the value of human diversity. And I think that in the same way that we need species diversity to keep the planet going, that having a diversity of human beings is terribly important and that narrowing the range of what it means to be human is a dangerous, dangerous exercise. Of course, if we can treat conditions and uh, get people not to experience as much pain as they otherwise would, then there's no reason uh, in most instances not to do that. But as our devaluing of people who are different is actually bad, not only for the people who are different, but also for ourselves. So I now feel if my children were in a classroom, I used to think uh, if they were stuck in a classroom with disabled children who were slowing everything down, it would be great for the disabled children, kind of a pain for the other kids. And now I think the lessons that one learns from being exposed to a diversity of human experience are about a million times more valuable than finishing your long division study three weeks sooner than you otherwise would have. So I think that was a big change. And I guess the biggest change for me really was that it was in the course of working on this book that I decided to have children. And people said to me, how can you be having children in the midst of a book about everything that can go wrong? And I said over and over again, but it's not a book about everything that can go wrong. It's a book about how much love there can be and how much joy in the experience, even when everything goes wrong. And it therefore has empowered me to feel that if all these parents could love all these children under all these circumstances, I'm going to be fine with whatever children I produce, and I will find a way to love them too. It gave me a great sense of liberation to encounter so much love and so much unlikely joy. Andrew Solomon, the book is Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. It is just out in paperback. Andrew, I thank you so much for spending time with us once again. Thank you. It's been a complete pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 